A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off. bluenile.com code LISTEN. If I can be with someone who's had similar experiences to me, but have a sense that things can get better, one creates a possibility that there is an alternate view of the world. Having these conditions or experiences is not your destiny. That is Jack Heath, the CEO of SANE Australia. And this is episode 181 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. G'day and welcome to the show. This is the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg and this is episode 181 with the CEO of SANE Australia, Mr. Jack Heath. More about Jack in a minute. Thanks to everybody that supported the show this week. A big thanks to the new people who have pledged some money on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Osher, O-S-H-E-R. It makes a huge difference in being able to bring you new episodes each and every week, particularly this week. There was a double week. Uh, for as little as five bucks a month, you can hear exclusive podcasts made just for you because you are supporting the show and also have a warm feeling of joy in your tummy that you're helping this show get to air. Uh, it's five bucks a month. If you can afford five bucks a month, it's $1.25 a week. It's less than a song on iTunes. It's a quarter of a cup of coffee. If you can spare it, that would be great. If not, no problem. Uh, all I'd ask is that you grab someone's phone that you know and love and show them the podcast app, show them how to download a couple of episodes, maybe a couple of this show, and um, send them on their merry way into listening to things while they do things that they otherwise wouldn't be listening to things when they're doing them. Yeah, that. Thanks for the great podsies this week. Hashtag P-O-D-S-I-E. That's a photo taken with the phone you're listening to this on right now. You can just send it to me. Send Osher email at gmail.com or Twitter or Facebook or wherever. A big thanks to Ermenegilda who sent a fantastic podsie. She is uh, working with uh, 
the United Nations Formation Councils on Climate Change, the UNFCCC, and uh, she's a negotiator in a delegation uh, there in Bonn in Germany at the current climate conference. Uh, she's in there. She's making climate change deals to save us all, and she's listening to this show. Thank you so much, Amina Gilda. Thank you very, very much for sending that. Uh, wherever you are in the world listening to this right now, thank you from all of us here in Australia. Thank you. To check in, I hope your week was okay. I hope you hugged someone. I hope you took a breath where you needed to. I hope you got your meditation in. I uh, would say that the Headspace app, uh, my, I listened to it first through uh, my mate Rich Roll. He told me to get into it. And uh, since then, my, my own doctor said, you should really get this app. It's really good. Uh, it's been really good. So um, I would recommend that. My week was a bit tough. I've been telling you that I've been um, changing my meds. I got nowhere near enough sleep this week. There's good things and bad things about having a Fitbit. And one of them is that it says, you got four hours and 38 minutes of sleep last night. It doesn't talk like that, but in my brain it does when I turn it on. Um, so in connection with knocking my meds back a few milligrams, it's made me an irritable, irritable little man. The problem is, is when I'm an irritable, irritable little man, I don't realize that it's me. Uh, I don't understand that I'm in the middle of it and I'm flooded and I don't appreciate that I'm the problem and I really need to just take a breath and assess my reactions to things. There was a lot of attention to, uh, a lot of attention on mental illness this week. I put out an article on Huffington Post about what it's like to live with uh, the brain I've got just ahead of Schizophrenia Awareness Week, which I'm going to uh, talk a bit more about in a moment. Uh, but Audrey, my wife, joked that she should be the one writing the article because she's the one that has to live with it. And I, was, I said, yeah, you should actually, you should. But I really encouraged her to do it because her perspective of what it's like to live with me on the days where I'm in full flight would be really helpful to a lot of people, I'm sure, because it's one thing for me to talk to you about what it's like to live with my brain, but she has to live with me and my brain and try to deal with the irrationality from one minute to the next. And she does a fantastic job, I have to say. So uh, maybe I'll get that out of her. If you did read that article, uh, you can see it on my Twitter or my Facebook page. Um, and something did resonate with you, please, I'd encourage you, if you need to talk to someone, pick up the phone and call Lifeline in Australia on 13-11-14. Or indeed, call the SANE Australia helpline on one 800 187263. That's 1-800-18-SANE. Uh, with that in mind, let me tell you about my guest today. Jack Heath is the CEO of SANE Australia, where I am fortunate enough to sit on the board as a director on their board. Now, Jack started out with a career in politics. He worked in Australia while the Labor government was in power here in Australia. And there was a tragic incident where his cousin died by suicide, which Jack will talk about. And Jack started the Inspire Foundation in 1997. Now, the Inspire Foundation is now known as Reach Out, and at the time it was the world's first online mental health service for young people. After over a decade there and successfully launching Reach Out in Ireland and in the US, Jack is now the CEO of SANE Australia, which works to help the nearly 4 million Australians affected by a complex mental illness. There's been a great amount of work done in our community around awareness and destigmatization of anxiety and depression. And indeed, we now live in a different society in social issues and social uh, attitudes towards those illnesses. However, 
There's nearly 700,000 Australians that live with a complex mental illness diagnosis. Now, this includes bipolar disorder, obsessive and compulsive disorder, borderline personality disorder, eating disorders, and schizophrenia. Now, this week in Australia, it is Schizophrenia Awareness Week. And whatever you think about schizophrenia, I'm asking you to maybe just to open your mind to be changed. Schizophrenia is not a death sentence. There is help. There is treatment available, and indeed, a rich and fulfilling life is still available to you if you do get diagnosed. I guess the biggest misconception about schizophrenia is that a diagnosis means you'll be a danger to yourself and to others. But in fact, the latest research out of Sweden shows that the possibility of someone with schizophrenia being violent is far less likely than previously thought which is a finding that allows both medical personnel and indeed law enforcement to focus their limited resources on the very few patients that do pose a risk to themselves and others. And that's really positive news. It's really positive news. We spoke last week with Dr. Mark Cross, and he talked about you know, what it was to get a diagnosis of schizophrenia and that indeed a rich and fulfilling life is still available to you. And yes, it can get better. And today, Jack Heath from saying, well, pretty much tell you a very similar thing and you know we do have a fair way to go in our country when it comes to destigmatizing mental illness just have a look at you know whatever news website you look at and see how many headlines contain contain the word crazy insane you know mental all these words all these words man they can mean a lot certainly if someone's got a kid that has just been diagnosed. It's uh, it's pretty tough. So a trigger warning right here at the top. Jack's story, as I spoke earlier, it was spawned with the tragic death by suicide of his cousin. And Jack talks about that, and we talk a bit about suicide. Jack also discloses incidents of sexual abuse that happened to him while he was still a kid. If these two things are difficult for you to hear, it's okay if uh, you just kind of hit skip and um, jump five minutes ahead when you hear us getting in that direction. If you do need to speak to someone, please, please, please hit pause on this podcast, open up the phone and call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or you can call SANE Australia on 1-800-18-7263. It's one 7263 It's a great conversation with Jack. He's a great human being. I love watching him operate. I have sit, I've sat in about six or seven board meetings with Jack now, and it's inspiring to watch him work. It's inspiring to watch the way he handles various situations and complex challenges that come his way. And I'm very grateful to be working alongside him on something that is just so, so important to me. It's, it can be a heavy conversation, but it is an important conversation. So I'm glad you can be a part of this. Are you ready? All right. Coming to my house in Bronte. Come sit at my vintage Parker furniture extendable table. Nestle yourself into one of the comfy vintage Eames chairs and enjoy a cup of tea and a chat with the CEO of Sane Australia, Jack Heath. Hi, Jack. I'm good. A bit speedy, but okay. What do you mean? Oh, I've just been rushing around. Oh, okay. Well, what's going on? You're here now. You made it to Bronte, beautiful Bronte in the, the eastern part of Australia. 
Australia ends about a kilometre that way. Well, no, it's, it's, it's a wonderful part of the world here. And I, was, when I was driving here, I was thinking, this is where I used to come and see Anne Deverson a few times because she was just down the road from here. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, she had a house just about a, two blocks away. Right. So, so I, grew, I grew up in Brisbane, so, you know, coming to a city where you can live by the ocean yeah. and have the ocean just a step away is, is still pretty crazy yeah, for yeah. me. It's still... <laughs> Frankie, are you going to do that the whole time? Really? It's just the garbage man. Oh, man. This will be a bother. Good <laughs> um, What part of the world did you grow up in? I grew up um, on a farm just out of Maroopna um, in northeastern Victoria. How far from the ocean? Uh, a good two and, two and a bit hours. So not that eastern? No, no, no. So we, yeah, no, northeast. So we are sort of inland. So we go uh-huh. straight up from Melbourne near, near a place called Shepparton. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know yeah, where yeah. So Shepparton and Maroopna was just across the river from Shep, as we called it. And grew up on a farm a couple of miles out of town. A working farm? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we had sheep and wheat and cattle and um, fat lambs and, um, yeah, that was... So quite a, quite a bit going on. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, it was... Most of the area around there was sort of fruit growing, but we had that sort of stuff, loose and hay and all that, but sort of born and bred on a farm. Big family? Uh, I was the eldest of five. Right. So a good Catholic family. What's that like? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, when you're the, when you're the first, um, you're sort of out there doing things on your own. And so, you know, my siblings, my thing was always about going out there. And I never had a sense of people leaving me and having been left behind. Whereas I think, um, and that's, I think that's part and parcel of being the eldest. And so um, my siblings sometimes sort of say, oh, you're off doing your own thing and stuff. And I sort of, I, di- I didn't quite get it until when we were living in the States and... Um, um, we were talking about where our daughter might go off to university and um, and Jamie, my son, we were sitting on the steps and and he was lamenting the fact that, you know, his sister was going to leave and um, and I sort of didn't quite, you know, understand what that was about and then I realised that what he was saying to me about his the potential, he said, look, I've only ever, you know, known Lucy ever since I've been alive and I, I sort of went, oh, okay, now I've got more of a sense of someone leaving has significance and so I was a little bit more understanding in terms of some of my siblings giving me a hard time about going off and doing my own thing and not staying close to family. Would it, was it expected that you'd stick around on the on the farm and, and oh, inherit no. it? No, not, 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 not for me. I think a big thing in our family was that um, certainly in terms of the Heath lineage that's handed down was that you never, you never scrimped on, on food or on education and so I was sent off to boarding school down in Melbourne, it was sort of, you know, what they thought was the best school available. But also, too, there was a sense, certainly from my father, that once you turned 18, you're out on your own and you made your own way, and um, that's something I sort of really valued. But sometimes it means that you sort of can pursue things and a little bit forgetting about others who are in and around you, if that makes sense. Right. Was there a a large age difference between you and the next kids? No, no. My sister, a year younger and then brother, two years beyond that and then another three. So so we were basically, there was, I think mum had, she had, was it, she had three kids, you know, under three. Wow. So, um, yeah, so sort of very close in terms of, um, in terms of those age differences. But then I went off to boarding school when I was, what, 12 or something. Jesus. Couldn't think of anything more terrifying. Well, you know, in retrospect, you'd say yes, but at the time I, I didn't have an experience, any other experience. I had nothing to compare. I had no brother or sister to talk about their experience. And so you just sort of 
thrust into the world and that's just your reality mm. and you don't have anything to compare it with. So there's an extent to which you sort of, not so much you think it's normal, but you just say this is just how things, how things are. Right. Was it, uh, I mean, at this point you've only known kids that are from your part of the world and yeah. you've only ever known what it's like to see a horizon in every direction you, and then you're in the city of Melbourne. That must have been a bit odd. Well, it was a little bit, although I, I had our cousins who grew up in Melbourne used to come and stay on the farm um, every so often, and we used to be quite terrible with them because we'd actually sort of terrorise them <laughs> and <laughs> different, you know, animals and places and all that sort of stuff. So I had a little bit of a sense of, you know, going down to Melbourne and, you know, our family was sort of, well, my father was a cricket tragic and so we used to always go down to the MCG for the Boxing Day test wow. and stuff. So Melbourne was not unfamiliar, um, but, um, yeah, but I always sort of went down there sort of open-eyed and mm. 12, 12 years old or whatever. And what was interesting is when I went to boarding school was that the first year it was all big, new, exciting adventure and it was only in the second year that I started to get homesick and stuff, which mm. I don't still quite understand how that quite works. So that would have been the old MCG with the terraces and oh, no, yeah, no yeah, covered yeah. stands. And yeah, yeah, and, we, and I, think, I think it was a 67, 68 series. Um, I went and I did the um, scoring for the um, Australian-West Indies test match. And like so... In terms of that focus, you know, there was whatever, an eight-year-old or whatever, five days in a row sort of recording every single dot ball or four. Or I think Chapel made 165 and I think Bill Laurie made 205 or something. So, Like when you think of what cricket was like before television yeah. and, you know, I remember when I first moved to the States and was trying to explain cricket to baseball fans. Like, no, no, what do you mean a game goes for two hours? <laughs> game goes for five days, sometimes six with a rest yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. And it's riveting. Every yeah. delivery yeah, is, yeah, is yeah. riveting. Like, to try and imagine that, like, an eight-year-old would sit still for five days now. Yeah, I know. It's just sort of like with my son. He's, what, just um, he's 16 or 17. And, um, um, yeah, and the attention spans are just not, are not there anymore. Yeah. And, um and it was interesting because you know I, my father was you know quite a quite a grumpy character and um, <laughs> would be sitting there in the members and um, you know everyone's sort of on best behaviour and Leon would be out there yelling out abuse to the people from New South Wales because they died in the wall Victorian and all this sort of stuff <laughs> and we'd be sort of hiding, cowering down as he'd sort of be launching into these great sort of tirades. But anyway, <laughs> but it was very special and um, and we used to do that every you know every Boxing Day and then. Um, and then when Dad passed away, I think it was about 10 or 11 years ago, but the last time I saw him was after we said farewell outside the MCG and we went our various ways. And, you know, we'd had a pretty, um, we'd had a pretty tumultuous relationship, um, but it was only in those sort of, you know, in the latter years that I, I think the thing was that I, I found actually just being with him and being in silence with him was a really powerful thing. So I used to really love going and spending, you know, I wouldn't do the five days, but a day or two with him. And there was almost this sense of acceptance, father and son, that even though we'd gone very different paths and had different views of the world, that spending that time quietly together was very special. So in a way, it's sort of very nice that, you know, that last time I, I saw him was off the back of walking out of the MCG. Yeah. What's it, um, like when you're in boarding school, can you give me a picture of what your next step is. Like, I know certainly this kind of school I went to, the next step for everyone was just assume that you would all go to university. It was never, uh, you know, there was no kind of, oh, look, you'll just kind of go out and, you know, try and 
get a job here or there. It was just assumed that everyone would go to uni. Was it the same for you? Yeah, it looked pretty well. I mean, I, I went to Xavier, which was a Jesuit school in Melbourne, and and the pathways were, you know, there were basically three pathways. One was you either become a Jesuit, which was where I thought my destiny was and there was no question that's what I was going to do, go and become a priest. Um, the second pathway was that you went and um, you were smart and you did either law or medicine. And the third pathway was if you weren't that bright, you went and did commerce and might do the family business sort of thing. But it was sort of very much those sort of three avenues. And, um, and so I ended up going and doing... You know, after I decided that the um, the religious path was not the one for me, going and doing you know law at the University mm. of Melbourne, and that was sort of par for the course. You either went to, you know, and if your marks weren't good enough, maybe you went to Monash. But it was all sort of it was a very sort of mapped out yeah. approach um, to life. What part? What what ha- what happened when you? Because committing to being, I'm going to go and do a priest. I'm going to go to theology school. All that kind of stuff. That's a pretty big deal for a young man. What what happened? Oh, well, I mean, very simply, I got abused by a priest, was sexually abused by a priest when I was 13 years old. And so I, I was, um, um, you know, I was very devout. I used to go to Mass every morning and when I was back up at home, we'd be doing all the ceremonies and I just sort of felt that that was where life was and, um, and where I was destined to go. And then I think that it was a period of abuse over about six months um, and um, and then I became very sick uh, at the end of that, which in a sense I felt like my body just sort of rescued me from the situation. And then off the back of that, then I sort of disengaged more from... I still had a very strong, if you like, sort of religious connection. Um, but then um, um, as I, I went and studied and I studied, you know, history and Renaissance and Reformation and it was more about the role of man in the world rather rather than God in the world and went off to uni and became a rabid Marxist there for a number of years. And um, anyway, so, but it's interesting now, I sort of come back in terms of sort of a, a, a Buddhist practice is that I sort of feel like I'm sort of back a little bit where I started in terms of trying to have that sort of daily, you know, spiritual practice. I mean, it sounds a little bit pretentious and I'm, you know, I'm not a role model in so many ways, but... Um, I think that thing for me of nurturing that sort of inner aspect is so 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 critical in one's life, and certainly for me. Can I ask you about what happened with the priest? Yeah, for sure. How did you how did you talk to your folks about it? Oh, well, I didn't talk to my folks about it, so it was just just didn't didn't come up. So, um, you know, and I, I don't want to underestimate, but it was sort of you know it was sort of molestation over a period of about five or six months and stuff. It, it wasn't some of the more grosser things that certainly have been horrific things that have been reported in the context of the Royal Commission, but it was, you know, it was definitely abuse nonetheless. I think it was this thing is I just didn't have, um, this was just reality. I didn't have anything to compare it to. Mm. And um, and certainly there was a sort of a disconnect because, you know, priests were like second to God. And so because I was so devout, I, 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 I didn't, wasn't quite able to process it. Um, and really, it wasn't for um, um, it wasn't for you know many many years later until I sort of got some context or perspective on it, and then decided to you know go and take action around it. But um, um, yeah, it was um, uh, and and you know and the and the priest that abused me was the boarding house master, and um, uh, you know and he was a cricket tragic as well. But then you sort of go back and you. 
you realised later on there was a whole grooming process that was taking place, but you at the time sort of felt that this was someone being kind. And, yeah. and so when I first went and sort of um, took issue with him and went to the Jesuits and reported it, um, I was still sort of trapped in that situation and I was sort of saying, oh, look, don't be too harsh on him. You know, you know, maybe he's just a bit mistaken and all that. And it was only in latter years, as you understand more about processes of grooming and all these other things, that you realise it's quite far more insidious. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. Absolutely. How did it, how did it affect you as a as a teenager? Oh, um, you mentioned that your body rebelled. Yeah, so my body rebelled, and um, um, and then I was. Look, I, I sort of threw myself into into sport, um, and 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 often we, you know, and so often people affected by trauma, as we try and find some, or we have to find some sort of physical expression of it. Um, um, I also then, you know, when I and went off to uni, I was, you know, a party boy, and I'd drink a lot and be wild and interesting, and so there's a lot of these sort of high intensity activities that where you're more sort of caught up in almost those adrenal things and you're rushing and, and you know, in, in terms of your depression or feeling down, I would tend to sort of mask, I'm not sure mask is the right word, but I'd drink quite a lot. So you go from being a party boy um, and being interesting and entertaining but trying to push it always to the limit. That was the thing about, is about just taking things to the edge all the time and then it's taken me, you know, whatever it is, 40 years or whatever, to realise that, you know, living at the edge is not sustainable. But when we have that sort of history of trauma um, and we haven't necessarily dealt or processed it all, the, the thing that we feel good about is that moment when you're just out from it but you're alert and you're wired. And those things then end up becoming a, a habit pattern of how we deal and interact with the world. Certainly if you've sense. been numbed at all by the trauma, it's only at those edges where you can feel things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is the, this is the thing is that I didn't realise for, for decades is that, you know, people talk about being in these dangerous situations and they talk about the fight or flight reaction. But actually the one that happens so often is, is freeze. And this is where we lose touch with our body, where... We're not even able to have a uh, reflect on the situation because we're just um, we're just insensitive to it, and so this, if you like, the unfreezing thing is it, that's that's a process that really only comes about um, when we start to feel more comfortable in our bodies and when we feel safe in our bodies. And so, for me, if I think about what were the things that helped and shifted me, it was when I actually got involved with. Tibetan Buddhism, which is what, 20 years or so ago. And, you know, given my own experience and given that in the Tibetan tradition you have like guru relationships, I was sort of, my antenna were up and I was hyper alert. And what happened was that I experienced the company of spiritual men with whom I felt 100% safety. And so through that experience, I had a notion of that it didn't have to be as it was and that there was a possibility of a different being, if you like, in a spiritual context or, in a, you know, having those relationships or going back to those ways of being in a way that was non-threatening. And I think this is, for me, this is one of the biggest things is that, you know, so many of us have had histories of trauma and when you go to psychiatrists or the model there is to treat the symptoms, to medicate, and on the other hand... Um, you'll get more of the talking therapies of the psychotherapist 
And a lot of that is around the cognitive processes and trying to get you to think differently. But when we come to this with a history of trauma, we just so easily can go back into like the limbic system of the brain where we're very reactive. And the thing that helps those other modalities, if you like, be of benefit um, is when we start to feel safe in our bodies ourselves because that's when we can start to tap in to more of those self-healing mechanisms, whether it's starting to sleep better or do a whole lot of things. Is that, is that, yeah, that, that, yeah, that makes sense. And so, yeah. Was there any part of, I don't know, thank you for, for, for sharing that. I can certainly relate to a lot of what you just said. Um, what, if any, part of that, because you've, you've made a career of, of helping mm. others, did any of what happened to you play into what you ended up dedicating your work to? Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, in, in sort of, um, look, in, in ways that you never expected. And I, you know, when I, was, when I was in my 20s and, you know, working in government and that, and, you know, I was very ambitious and had a notion of career, but if I think about the mental health journey, it's been less about a career and more about sort of just showing up as opportunities presented. But what happened was around 95 or so, which was when I'd stopped working with Keating, I was exhausted there, had chronic fatigue. Um, I was looking then about, I had to make a decision whether or not my energy was going to be directed towards seeking redress and that around the abuse stuff, or was it going to be focused on trying to do something around youth suicide? Because a couple of years prior to that, I'd had a um, a young cousin who um, um, who'd, who'd um, attempted suicide on our farm up at Marutna and left himself with just the most horrendous injuries. He spent months and months in hospital. The same ones that used to come and visit. The same no, ones that used no, to come so and visit. This was, so this this was the this this wasn't the city heath. They were the ones that used to come and visit. So this oh, was right. this was my cousin who actually lived on the farm as well, and he was about the same age as my youngest brother. And so after he'd been in hospital for months, he, um, he went back to the farm. He was meant to be there for a week or two, and then he's going to go back and get all these operations and stuff. And anyway, he, he ended up ending his life there on, on, on the farm. And when that happened, that was, you know, that was a horrific, um, the whole thing and for many months there. But I'd always sort of... I, at the time, I put that at the back of my head and I was going to be you know, a politician and going to do all these things, and so I was back into the career mode. But in '96, I'd stopped working and there was a thing, do I do, go and do the stuff around the abuse or do I go and try and do something around the suicide piece? And because when I'd been working with Keating, we did a whole lot of stuff around the internet and that, I sort of said, oh, no, I'm going to leave that and I'm going to go off and do, and do, the, um, do the piece around um, the youth mental health and the suicide prevention. And... I'm not sure if irony is quite the, the right word, but, you know, fast forward 14 years and the ABC Australian Story did a um, profile on me and I talked about my own experience and wanting to go st- and do stuff with my cousin. And, um, and then I get contacted by someone who'd been at school at my cousin and basically saying that he'd been abused. And that was the trigger for him being sent down from school and then he moved into the whole period with schizophrenia and everything and so there was a sense about like we go on these big journeys around the world and they're taking me to the states and and and, and then realizing that um, um, this issue for me around trauma and complex mental illness um, is 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 the um, is is probably one of the biggest things that we have to grapple with and so when I 
ended up at SANE, um, which was, what, five years ago, and I didn't want the job. And part of the reason was the experience of my cousin. My mother had been in and out of a psych hospital a few times. I had an aunt who had paranoid schizophrenia. Um, I sort of didn't want to go back into that really difficult, complex area. And I kept on resisting it, and then just a number of things kept on happening. Every time I'd try and push against the door, the door would just open. And what I found, though, was that when I got to SANE was that um, I was meeting people who have been living with schizophrenia, holding full-time jobs or living with... So all these conditions that I thought were like a death sentence or you could never have any sense of hope, I was meeting people who were living with these, you know, really challenging conditions but contributing and, and, and doing amazing things. And, and as I've spoken to people over the past five years, you've got to be careful that you don't project yourself, but... I would say 70, 80% of people um, who I've spoken to have got complex mental illness, have got a history of trauma. And so the big issue is that we just don't address it. Um, and so, you know, what might be characterised as bipolar or even schizophrenia or a whole lot of these other things, um, in many ways, um, can be our way of responding to what, what's a trauma there. And for so long as our... Um, clinicians, be they psychiatrists, psychologists or others, don't understand that we need to find ways of people feeling safe in our body physically, um, we're not really going to sort of move on. And um, and so I think that's... And when I look back at my life and the story and all that, there's been this sort of thing around trauma, you know, complex mental illness or whatever, and then how do you try and put the pieces back together again? And I think I'm blessed in the sense that through my own experience in, in, in the Buddhist tradition, is that I've experienced that feeling of safety and that is the absolute fundamental that enables you start to sort of reassemble the pieces together. And so I, I have a sense that you're... Um, th there's none of these situations where we're not able to put the pieces back together, but feeling comfortable in our bodies and that is, is probably is the precursor to making that movement. Sounds, yeah. a bit, sounds a bit heavy, but anyway. no, 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 that's fine. <laughs> you mentioned uh, you mentioned having a mum that was in and out, yeah, um, of the uh, psych hospitals. Mm. Was that while you were living at home? Oh, look, that was that was around the time of um, when my cousin was unwell. Okay, and so mum was mum um, uh, was looking after him. She was the primary caregiver. Yeah, and. You know, and I think my father quite resented that because, as you know, and I'm saying this as sort of a as a husband and father who's got a 16 year old, 17 year old son who my wife is completely, um, you know, besotted by. Is that often what happens? Is that if is is that for men, for fathers, is that if the the if the you know if your wife or partner starts devoting your attention to someone else, we're not very good at coping. With that, and so certainly at that time, my father was very um, uh, resentful and angry towards my mother that she was spending all the time looking after her nephew, um, his, you know, her nephew rather than dad. So that was very stressful for mum, and mum was also doing a lot of care for um, her sister-in-law who developed paranoid schizophrenia as well, and then got cancer and stuff. So mum was overloaded in terms mm. of wanting to try and help the world and um, and that just sort of just got, got too much for her and right. so she'd go into periods of, you know, um, of highly sort of manic activity and that which was, um, 
Yeah, and so I had a couple of episodes there in hospital. How did uh, your folks talk to their kids about it? Oh, we didn't really. Yeah. We didn't really. Um, you know, with that stuff, when, when that was, I was working in Canberra at the time and was sort of on that sort of, you know, political treadmill and was busy and racing around, so we didn't really have the conversations yeah. um, about it. Um, um, and being the eldest, I was the one that sort of went and I had a friend from uni who was a psychiatrist and was sort of finding the pathways to deal with that, but I was sort of very much in a fixed mode and I didn't really sort of sit and talk and share with my siblings. Mm. Um, but thankfully what's happened, you know, over the past couple of years that mum's now got Alzheimer's and, you know, the five of us now, you know, we do regular family conferences and we share the care and all that sort of stuff. So we've found a way of being able to have those conversations in a way that we didn't, you know, you know, 10, 20 years ago. You, met, you mentioned um, that you worked in government. You were, yeah. you were down in Canberra as a, as a young gun. Yes. Uh, I, I can't but imagine that there are successful people in politics, particularly mm -hmm. in Canberra at the higher mm -hmm. end, who have some kind of, um, I, don't want to, I don't want to say mania, but they've certainly got something that allows them to, to do that and to be that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it, it's, this is really interesting territory. And in fact, there's a, um, there's a professor, um, Gamey, who heads up the Mood Disorders Unit at Boston University, and he wrote a book called, um, I'm trying to remember what it's called, it's something called a, um, An Interesting Madness or whatever, Understanding the Link Between Mental Illness and Leadership. And, and, and what he does is he goes back and he looks at history and he looks at Churchill, who had bipolar, um, and um, or people like Lincoln and even people like Martin Luther King and Gandhi and all this. And there's essentially there's a, a sort of a fine line between what might psychiatrists might describe as a mental illness, but an energy and a drive and a passion that's directed to... Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Awards wanting to try and be of benefit to people. And certainly, um, you know, if you think about a, a Churchill or you think about anyone who's in that sort of territory, if you've had those experiences of, um, of, of deep depression or whatever, a sense of hopelessness, what it gives you, though, is a sense of connection with the wider public and for other people who are going through a very difficult times. So that gives you almost a relatability to the struggles, the difficulties of people, um, you know, across the community because, 
you know, there's hardly any one of us that's not touched in some very deep way by, you know, troubling circumstances. But at the same time, you can have an energy and drive and you can be compelling and want to speak and be extrovert and be out there and, and have a drive. And, um, and that can, so long as that's done in a healthy way, I think that's very, uh, a very positive thing. But just going back to um, Gamey, I mean, his thesis, putting it very crudely, was that um, in times of business as usual, you need the sane people in charge. But when you're in a crisis, you need the slightly crazy people in charge. So people who are not are ready to go and take a risk and, and, and do something that's really, um, you know, so you look at Churchill and you go, Churchill, um, Chamberlain was there. He didn't quite know how to manage things. Churchill had to cut through. He said, this is what we're going to do. But then once the war was over, Churchill didn't know how to manage peacetime. And so he was totally inappropriate. So there's a sense that in those times of crisis, you need people who um, um, are not the right people when it's business as usual. And what kind of what kind of leader was Keating? Oh, Keating was quite was quite quite extraordinary, and um, um, you know I, I'm not a clinician. I wouldn't want to go and you know sort of try and psychoanalyze or whatever different leaders. But I think the thing around Keating was that he was he was visionary, and he was um, he was fearless, and um, and he always his view was always that good policy was good politics. Um, but I think what, what happened was that um, he had a sense of where Australia could go, what it was capable of, but it got towards the end of his time where he was sort of getting way out ahead of the team, out of the Cabinet, and what was happening was that as they saw him sort of go further out, they dropped back a little bit, and he'd sort of say, oh, they're not... So there was this tension where he kept on going out more and more because he could see and had a sense of what was capable, but we didn't quite sort of bring the rest of the team or, or the people with us on the journey. And so, but then when you look at what he did and the fact is that, you know, Australia's current state is so, so um, dependent on the actions and stuff that he took in a very fearless way about what he genuinely thought was right for the country was very inspiring. And, um, and so he wasn't, you know, as he used to say, you know, he's not waking up, will I get out of bed in the morning according to whether or not there's a poll on something. So he, he, he had a conviction in what he thought he was right and then, and then pushed through with it. Um, but at the same time, you know, when I worked in the office, you know, come Friday afternoon, everyone's kids would come into the office. It was just like the most warm, friendly, and it was never Prime Minister, it was always Paul. And so he had this soft, gentle, personal side that certainly we felt the public should see, but he didn't want to because he had a very strong demarcation between your private and your public life. And so all those very endearing and, and sweet qualities that he showed at a personal level didn't really get, didn't get um, any coverage at, at a political level. So, um, look, he was, he, he, he was um, interesting and inspire, inspiring. I was, I was only with him for about six months before I, I, I stopped work, but... Um, um, he was he was quite extraordinary, and um, you know, and I, I do I, I wonder what would happen with him now with the media cycle that we have, and um, yeah, I just but anyway, I think he was he was the right man for the times. You, you spoke about him being progressive and being out out the front with somewhat more visionary and 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 driving things, and then the cabinet, his own party, being somewhat resistant to to change. Did you get a sense of 
the actual time you need to wait until attitudes and moods change because part of the work that, that Sane does mm. is around stigma. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, certainly in the last since I've been working with mm. Sane, mm. Um, I've been quite aware of how, you know, just never been more conscious of headlines that use the word insane or headlines yep. that use the word crazy yep. or headlines that word, use the word mental. Mm. Um, and the general population's, you know, I'm sure some people believe that asylums are still there. Yes. You know, yeah, yeah, and that yeah. people just get locked up and people with white coats are coming. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and how long it might take until that changes. Did you get a sense of the time frame and, and how long you've got to just kind of be patient and wait? Well, I think, I think the thing around this is that is in terms of sort of this reducing stigma is that I think, you know, at a national level, we've done a reasonably good job in terms of the stigma around depression and anxiety. So people are less concerned to stand up and say, look, I've had periods of depression or I get anxious and that. But we haven't seen similar progress around the more complex mental illnesses. So if we're talking about schizophrenia or bipolar or eating disorders and and those sorts of conditions... um, but the way, and certainly my experience, if I go back to those early days at SANE, it was my interactions with people living with these, what I would have thought were very, very severe conditions, that suddenly shifts my perspective. So what we, the work is very much about getting people to share their stories so that, it, and it's a similar thing in terms of, you know, if I go back 20, 30 years or whatever, when I hadn't really had contact with Indigenous people, and it was when you start going, having that initial contact, and you say, well, these people are sort of wanting the same things that I want. And so what happens is that that social contact that you have with individuals, whatever the issue might be or their history might be, is that that social contact then connects you back into our common humanity, right? Because we all de- care deeply for our kids, our family. We want a place to live. We want something meaningful to do. Um, our common humanity... Is, is, is far more common than we quite appreciate. And so when it comes to the more complex mental illnesses, um, people living with these conditions are wanting the same things that everybody else does. And so if we haven't had those contacts and interactions or if the only story we've heard about someone living with schizophrenia is that they ended up murdering a couple of people... That colours our view in terms of what it means to live with these conditions. So the work around this is about, it's, it's unfortunately, it would be great if it, we could do it differently, but it's basically drip by drip by drip. It's story by story by story. And that becomes hard because the way that media is operating at the moment is that media now has got both a spotlight and a magnifying glass. And so that isolated examples of someone living with a particular condition are now broadcast in a way where people think, oh, that's the reality. So in a sense, the work is is we've just got to keep going story after story after story after story. And that's the thing. We've certainly, I think, done that pretty well around depression and anxiety, but we need to be doing a lot of more of that around some of those the, some of the uh, more complex situations. Because it's, it's not just, though, for... General society, when they, uh, well, people in the community, when they hear someone has been, you know, mm-hmm. has an eating disorder or mm-hmm. someone's bipolar or someone's got schizophrenia, it's also for the person that's been diagnosed. Because I, I, in my own in my own experience, I can I can only speak to is that when when my diagnosis came mm-hmm. down, I was like, oh no no no, this, it's OCD, yeah. and here's the drugs you'll have to take every day. 
when until when well, forever yeah. you know i felt scared you know well, yes. I, I felt scared because like shit this is what it's come to that i have to take i have to take meds every day now and, yeah. and this has to be my life i can't imagine what it would be like if you've only ever heard mm-hmm. that if you have schizophrenia you know your breakfast cereal will tell you to kill mm-hmm, someone mm-hmm. that'd be terrifying yeah, as, as a patient, that'd be terrifying and, and thinking that you might be capable of this. So yes. a, a part of it's got to be also connect, com, connecting to the, the people that are suffering with these. Oh, I'll, ab- absolutely, absolutely. And the thing is that um, is, is also too though, you know, and I was speaking with a, you know extraordinary young woman who's been living with, you know, with um, eating dis- an eating disorder and had suicide attempt and been given a diagnosis around borderline personality disorder um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that that these are things that have to happen for the rest of your life. Um, um, it may well be that that's the case, but I do um, I do believe that um, I don't want to be Pollyannaish about it. But a lot of these conditions, I do think that they can be dealt with because one of the big issues is that because we don't understand this trauma issue because we don't go back and address the issues involved with that there will be a tendency and it will be well intentioned but to say you're going to be on these meds for the rest of your life or whatever and and i'm thinking about this um this young woman i was we're talking with a couple of days ago and so she'd been put on a whole lot of meds and and stuff and then i you know and then she was sharing a story saying that she's um she's been off them and so she's using um, you know, mindfulness and other sort of practices as well. So in saying that, you know, you don't go off meds lightly and you need to do it in a very sort of safe way. So I'm not sort of advocating that if anyone's on meds, they should should get off them. But I do think people need to entertain a sense or a possibility that there could be a reality where they're not needing to do that. And, you know, if I, in terms of my own situation, um, I went and saw a psychiatrist a couple of years ago and um, he said, oh, you know, I think you've got a case of bipolar too. And he said, look, I think you need to you need to do exercise, you need to do mindfulness, and you need some meds. And I said to him, I said, look, I'll, I'm doing the mindfulness and I'm doing the exercise thing. I'll take the prescription for the meds, but I want to have a go at trying to do it without it. And, um, and so I guess over the past, what, 18 months or so, that's been the case. Now, one has to be you know, not be proud about, you can't be proud about sort of saying, oh, I'm not going to take meds because they're not going to help. Because I've, I've seen and I know so many people for whom they're absolutely critical and people say, look, you know, I tried to go off or whatever and, you know, that was a very, you know, that was a very dangerous time in my life and so I'm back. So I think the thing, though, is that I wouldn't want to rule out the possibility that people can have a life off meds, um, but often what will happen is that they... Um, they can be the things that try and bring us more into a state of equilibrium where we can start to do the work. But um, but for so long as we don't really understand the impacts of trauma and how people who've experienced trauma um, need to be given the opportunities, the modalities, and a lot of this is physical work to put, put, to put things back together, then I can understand why people would say, you know, meds for the rest of their life. I'm on the the less complicated scale of, mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. things. Yeah. So when you, when you talk about meds for the rest of your life, I, I was one of the people that tried life without meds mm-hmm. and it didn't work out. Yeah. Um, I was in a very different space at the mm-hmm. time and I mm-hmm. hadn't done as much work 
um, and it ended really badly and ended up with me on uh, four different kinds of medications. Wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's funny you mention that because I'm down. I was on 125 milligrams of what I was on and, and then down to 100 about a month, two months ago. Now I'm trying down to 75. It's just it's, it's so slow and it's such a suck it and see process. Um, and, I've, you know, I have to I speak with, you know, yeah. both my doctors, speak with my, my mentor, speak with my, yeah. my wife, you know, talk about it every yeah. single time. It's not a, just a light, I'm not going to take them today. But I get why people don't want to be on them because the, I was certainly on, I was on meds that um, I was gaining a kilo a week. Yes. I, was, I was running out of clothes to wear. Yeah. Um, sex was the furthest thing from my yeah. mind. The world had no color. It was just so dull. I didn't have the horrible thoughts that were traumatizing me mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that was nice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But after that all settles down, after all, you're like, what am I doing this for? Yeah, you know, yeah. all I want to do is eat yeah. and sit around and not yeah. talk to anybody. Yeah, yeah, so I yeah. get why yeah. it's this constant balance of living with it as well. Absolutely. And the thing, the thing is that you've just, people have just got to work out what works for them. So, um, and I just know how important meds have been so many people and they're so grateful in that. And, yes, there's all the side effects that go as well. So I think it's, it's if people are – it's something where we can't be black and white. We need to be testing, trying things. It's important that you've got either mentor or, as you say, psychiatrist or someone who you feel trust, you trust relationship and you sort of work through those things together. And, you know, I, I, I think it's wonderful in terms of, you know, with your situation and the people that you have – around you and a lot of support and then I think well you know there's 700,000 Australians living with these complex conditions and there's people that don't have the levels of support or don't have the economic wherewithals that someone like you or I do and so how do they have to deal with these situations and so I think it's um it's it's an area where and I certainly feel this with saying that we've got to be careful that we don't end up, if you like, dealing with the most high-functioning of those people in that complex category um, and forget those people um, who, who don't have the sort of access to services or, mm. or to friends and supports that we do. Um, because then what will happen is, is that if those people get left behind, we have a similar, what I'd call a Trump or a Brexit phenomenon, whereas those who are relatively well-off um, start to think life's okay and everything's fine, but we lose touch with our own sense of suffering or a notion of suffering, and we then disconnect from the situation of, you know, the rest of humanity. And for me, the suffering is is the is the is the door into our common humanity. And so, if you or I don't have so much a sense of suffering, uh, we don't we can't relate to people for whom that is a very very real day-to-day um, experience. So yeah. seven hundred thousand when our when our population is what twenty-four and a half million. Yeah, that's less than one in four people. Yeah, yeah, no, much, much, much less than that. But the thing is, that, so for us, it's sort of like okay, you've got seven hundred thousand people, um, and then what we would say is that like, and this is complex. So this is not, you know, a mild to moderate uh, case of mental illness, but. 700,000, and then if you just think for each of those people, there's, say, five directly impacted, and that might be family, friends or whatever. You do the math on that, and basically you're looking at 4 million Australians who are directly affected by complex mental illness. Now, you know, you could say 10 to 1, right, and then you're up at 8 million. So what's happened with me over the past five years is that when I started, 
you know, at, at saying in terms of the more complex end of the spectrum, you're thinking, oh, there's just a few of us in this box. There's not many of us. And now, um, once you start having a conversation, someone you, it's very rare um, that you come across someone who, who doesn't have, it might be a little bit you know, distant, but do have an experience of complex mental illness. But so often we don't have the conversation about it. Mm. Um, and so for me, you know, even today to have conversations around schizophrenia is still sort of, whoa, that's a bit, that's a bit sort of out there. Um, and, um, and we just need to, we need to shift, we need to shift that conversation because at the moment the stereotypes of people living with these very complex mental illnesses does not reflect the reality. So what are, let's talk about that. What's the, what are the biggest misconceptions about people living with schizophrenia? Well, I think the first one is that they're inherently dangerous and they're going to be violent. And, um, um, and, and sure, there will be a small percentage who are like that. Um, but, but the overwhelming majority of people living with these conditions are, are not in any way a threat to anyone. And in fact, are more likely to be the recipients of violence or whatever than the, than the perpetrators. So that's, you know, that's one of the challenges. However, you know, going back to this issue around the media, um, it's a spotlight and a magnifying glass. So if the story gets blasted about someone who had schizophrenia and, and, and something sort of and, and violent happened, um, not surprisingly, that's where the association goes. And so that's why this work around stigma reduction um, is just long, hard work so that for every story that we hear where things went wrong, um, here's five, six, seven, eight stories of individuals of people who are living with these diagnoses um, but are contributing as much, if not more, than the rest of the community. And I've, so my experience of certainly insane is that people living with these conditions are some of the wisest, most generous, considerate and, you know, in terms of being work colleagues, highly effective. So we've just got to try and get the right understanding of what it li means like to live with these conditions. So it's still uh, it's still quite... I mean, I, I, I've spoken about it before on this show um, and the own, really the only parallel I can draw is the decision to come out, yep. you know, the decision to come out and to disclose. And I'm yep. never going to tell anybody else that you disclose and I'm never going to disclose mm -hmm. for anyone else. Mm -hmm. But when you mention the numbers and how high those numbers mm -hmm. are, when you're talking about, you know, 700,000 people... Any workplace, that means you look around any office, mm -hmm. the chance is pretty high that there's someone that you work with directly every yes. day yeah. that could be living with this and just doesn't talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the thing will be, though, you know, that's a chance, but there's a probability that one of your colleagues will be either a, a brother, sister, father mm. or whatever of someone in that particular situation. And the thing is that when we think that we're the only ones, when we don't realise how extensive or how pervasive these conditions are, we don't have the conversations because we're worried about the stigma. And so, you know, when we, you know, through the work we do at SANE and certainly when we go and meet, you know, people, leaders in the business community, I mean, this is by my experience is that, you know, um, when I'd go around with our, our, our former chair who was one of the business sort of doyens in, in Australia, we would go and sit down with people who'd either worked for him who are now leading, you know, chairing or CEOs of ASX companies and they would start to share in a safe environment the fact that they had a parent or a family member that was dealing with these issues. So this is the thing is if we don't feel safe talking about these particular 
situations, then we don't begin to have the conversation. And so we've got to try and open those conversations up. And then that's why it's valuable in terms of people, you know, disclosing. Um, but then, you know, people should only disclose if they feel comfortable doing it. And then I was talking to someone last night about this, is that one of the challenges then is that when you're still operating in a highly stigmatised environment, um, to say that you've got bipolar or you've got schizophrenia, suddenly people start labelling you according to your diagnosis. And so there's sort of this whole thing around disclosure is quite is quite complex. But I think the more that people can do that, um, I, I think it's a good thing. When when you look at someone, you know, when when you talk about someone who's been diagnosed mm-hmm. or someone who might think that something's going mm-hmm. not right, or there's someone in their life that things aren't going right. Maybe there's someone close to you that just has completely failed to see the positive. Uh, in the world, they might be self-medicating. They might be using alcohol or, or other recreational drugs mm-hmm. to, you know, to dull things down. How do you, how do you even start to have the conversation with that person? Um, well, you know, it, it 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 can it can be challenging. I think one of the most um, one of the most important things we can bring to any situation where there's a state of turmoil, be it emotional or whatever's going on, is a sense of um, and sort of peace and calm in ourselves. Um, and the thing is there is that if you can have a sense of genuine empathy or you can relate to a person's situation and that person feels that they're heard, um, but if you can be in a relatively you know positive, calm state of mind, the other person feels like, Yes, that person they get and they understand all the challenges, the difficulties or the trauma, whatever that's there. So that's a reality for them, but they're not overcome or overwhelmed by it. And I think how we come to these situations, um, and so, you know, I think about my my own journey is that, you know, for so many years I was sort of rushing around trying to save the world or, you know, these great noble projects because they were a bit easier than dealing with things internally myself Um, but if I can be with someone who's had similar experiences to me but you know have a sense of calm and peace or a sense that things can get better then by being in that good space oneself one creates a possibility for the other person that there is an alternate view of the world Um, that there is a, a, a place where having these you know whether it's conditions or experiences is not your destiny. And so um, so being well in ourselves is one of the most important things I think we can bring to helping others who are going mm. through distress. Um, the other thing too is that we have to respect um, everyone has their own path and their own way of dealing with these things. And I think over the years I've certainly been guilty of thinking, well, the things that work for me, they should work for everyone else. And so I did, you know, so, so say meditation is my medication and you can sort of think, oh, everyone else should meditate and do this. But people need to find their own pathways. So you need to respect where people are at. And and, and these changes don't happen overnight. Um, and so I think it's about trying to find a sense of where that person feels comfortable or where there's a sense of opportunity of, like, the next step that they can take. Mm. Now, whether or not that's talking to someone or, or whatever it is, but I think we have to bring this thing of being if you like, in communion with people 
and in communion with their pain, their discomfort, their suffering, but to have a sense that that's not the end of the game and that, and that there is a, a place or time, and it maybe it's a long way down the track, but there, there, there is an experience beyond the pain, beyond the suffering. That it, that it can get better. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. The, tri- the tricky part is, and I certainly, when I look at my own experience, mm-hmm. I consider myself very lucky in that I knew something was wrong. Um, but I remember my friends talking to me afterwards, going, man, you should have just called, you should have just called. And I said, look, it wouldn't have mattered because the part of my brain that would listen to a reasonable explanation was broken. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you told me everything was going to be fine, I would have told you, you're in on it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, you, you're part of it all. Yeah. Uh, you're a conspiracy. No, yeah. uh, you've been listening to the other people. And, yeah. you know, I was, my, my brain was just in this just volcano of fear that was completely irrational. And my ability to rationalise thoughts had disappeared um, luckily, I knew that, and it was actually through meditation yeah. that I that I, I identified that. It was only about God, like two weeks into it, that I realised, and it was only through meditation, it was only through observing my thoughts mm-hmm. and realising mm-hmm. that even the tiniest little piece of input, I don't know, let's just say the fact that this teacup is mm-hmm. empty, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that I could see was going through a filter of apocalypse. Yes, yes. Um, I thought that's not right. I should just be able to look at an empty teacup. An empty yeah. teacup's just an empty teacup. But it yeah. was only through that observation of thoughts that you, you find in meditation that I was, I was, I consider myself very lucky. Yeah, and that, and that's the thing is that what it does is it gives us a sense of distance between our thoughts and 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 a reality, and and that in a sense really only happens in the present moment. It's only in this of observing the now. And so what you know what 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 we tend to do is that so often we'll either get caught up in the past. Or we're racing ahead to the future, so I'm sort of, you know, coming and talking to you today a little bit speedy and that, and you know, having done my regular morning practice. But today, my whole brain for the whole period that I'm doing it is racing ahead. It's going into the future, and there is no security in the future. The only place that we can find security um, is in the present. And similarly, if we've had traumatic experience, um, the thing is that we can end up racing into the future because we're fearful of the past. But when we come into the present moment, we're coming to experience that discomfort that we have. And in many ways, that becomes very scary. So I think what's really important is that we're either with others or we can come into that experience or whether they're guides or teachers or, or whatever of being in the present in being in the present reality. And that gives us a clarity um, in terms of these thoughts or, you know, delusions or fears or whatever that we're having going on because it's, you know, the, the image that I have is like you have a sort of a jar that's sort of got muddy water in it and um, the more we shake it around, we can't see through it, we can't see past it, but you have to let it sit and you have to let it be still and it's in that stillness that we start to get the clarity and the perspective but, you know, we spend our lives just rushing around at a level of sort of manic activity that's just not not conducive to, um, to getting to a good place. What role do you think, um, you know, I certainly notice that Audrey has, so I don't notice it, so Audrey, my wife, notices mm-hmm. it. She goes, put your phone down. Just mm-hmm. put your phone down. You're on that thing and you don't, understand, you don't realise how much you're using it to escape from this moment. How do you think having a phone in our hand that connects us to everyone all the time and those little notifications that we love so much, how do you think that's affecting the general population's you know, ability to be in the present. Well, I, I, I think it's, it's, um, it inhibits our ability to be in the present. And I think, 
you know, for me, one of the one of the challenges of our times is that um, is is around when we sort of when we sort of look at something like depression, it's it's a condition that has a reflective aspect to it, so that you know, I have a sense that, you know, I might have been really in a bad spot before and I'm in a better spot now or I was in a better spot before and I'm in a bad spot now. It has a degree of insight. The experience of the condition has a degree of insight. The challenge is that when we move up into the sort of the sense of elevation or or, or, or that more sort of manic activity where we're rushing is is that we don't have, we don't have insight. Um, we're caught up in the adrenaline. We're caught up in the rush. Um, and and as those sort of the adrenals kick in and that it is quite a euphoric feeling. And if you go back to that, um, you know the fight or flight sort of thing. Yes, you do need your adrenals and everything and being hyper alert and you have a sense of clarity about stuff. But that sort of thing is a, an activity that should only happen in a you know a rare time when you're under when you're in sort of under threat or in, in danger. And so what happens is that we we just incessantly race. And the, the, the feeling of the racing and all that is, doesn't lend itself to insight. Do you know what I mean? We, we don't get, and so in a sense, if you like, if you talk about mania and depression, the mania is far, far more problematic than the depression because the depression you'll tend to withdraw. I mean, obviously, there's very severe depression um, and has severe consequences. But the challenge for me is, is about how do we rein in the, the manic, that, that excitement, that adrenaline, and you look at... The messages that are sent to us, you know, through the media or the experiences, it's all about tapping to almost a very sort of primal animal type instinct of, of pleasure and gratification. And what is the one thing that sort of pulls us out of that? Well, there's two things, actually. One is that we either career off until we hit the wall and our reality check is that sort of very severe experience of crisis. Or the other way into it is through the mindfulness or through the meditation, because what that does is to pull us out of that sort of rush, that future, and put us back into the present place. But, you know, I'm not a role model in this regard, because this morning I'm sitting there thinking I'm meant to be meditating and my mind's planning for the day, the week, or, and everything ahead. But, but this thing of bringing back the awareness into the present moment, that's what we have to do and we need to do. Um, so much more. Hearing someone who's been at meditation for 20-something years, that they're saying even their mind races, that makes me feel better about when my mind does it when I try to meditate. No, no, this is, this is, this is the other thing too, is that like when I went, when I started doing this meditation thing or whatever, I remember going, this was up at Blackheath, um, um, up in the Blue Mountains, and you would see people and they'd be sitting there and they'd be looking like a Buddha, right? And you'd be thinking, wow, how cool is that? I'd love to be like that. And then just by doing the practice over, you know, a number of years and stuff, I can sit there and I, if someone took a photo or whatever or someone looked at me, they'd say, oh, wow, that guy's really got his shit together. He's really... But if you could see in my mind where it was going and what it was doing, you'd be going, oh, he's a beginner. He's a beginner. And so this is the thing is that you only really know yourself as to what's going on internally. So... You know, don't don't be caught up in someone who's a Buddhist or looks like a Buddhist or can sit and not move and stuff. Um, and and the other thing, like in a, for me, that's very very sobering is don't also to get caught up in one's good intentions, because if I go back to my you know my Catholic heritage, you know Lucifer could have sat at the right hand of God, 
So if you look at all the angels and that, he was the most spiritually advanced or as advanced as any of the others. So the thing is that each and every day we have to make a decision to come back, to be there, to be present, to be centred and to want to be there for the benefit of others because if we're chasing our own gig all the time, that's where we run amok. Um, just, to, just to wrap us up here, Jack, you've, uh, you have a history in politics and part of what Sane does is advocacy. If you could see one policy change made in our country around complex mental illness, what would you do? I'd be wanting to have people understand the critical role that trauma plays um, in, in people's um, experience of complex mental illness and that we need to find new and better ways of dealing with trauma because otherwise we're just going to end up treating the symptoms. Uh, and the other thing too is that partly my own journey and I've seen the journey of others is that these incredibly traumatic experiences, um, we can put the pieces back together again. And um, the concern that so many clinicians and others have is that they don't want to go into that trauma territory because it's so difficult, it's so problematic and people don't feel that they've got the ability um, to solve that, so we'll just deal with the symptoms. So for me, the big thing is about how do we understand about the role of trauma in, in complex mental illness and how do we put in place um, you know, therapies, supports uh, that can enable people to put their lives back together because you know, I've had the, the privilege to meet um, a number of individuals who have been through horrendous traumas and who are now in a very, very good place and their heroic struggles... Um, for me at least, give you a sense it doesn't matter where you've been, what you've experienced, um, that there is hope there, but that the pathway to there can be a little bit complicated, but we need to do the work in terms of addressing trauma and complex mental illness. Can't thank you enough for coming over, man. Pleasure, Osha. I'm going to take your photo real quick, OK? Yeah, yeah, for okay, sure. OK, sweet. That was Jack Heath, the CEO of SANE Australia. You can find out more about SANE at sane.org. If you heard that and you feel a bit squirrely in the tummy, you're not quite ready to get back to whatever you were doing, by all means, just pick up the phone, call SANE on 1-800-187-263, or you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Very important that uh, you reach out because getting help in this country of Australia is incredibly easy. There is a lot of help out there and it can get better. It can and will get better. You don't have to live in pain. I can promise you that. I know what it's like to live in pain. I know what it's like to feel like it's never going to get better. It can and it does. So please, if you need to talk to someone, talk to your doctor, call Lifeline 13 11 14 or call SANE Australia on 1800 187263. I can't thank Jack enough for sharing his story. Um, I'm grateful, very, very grateful to be a part of the work that SANE Australia does. I hope that you have a fantastic week and you leave this conversation knowing a little bit more about what it is to live with schizophrenia and indeed a little bit more about how many people in our community are affected by a complex mental illness. And that is, it's not to be as scared of as we've been led to believe um, and that there is help and life can get better for everyone who is affected, be it the brother or sister, mother, father, son, daughter of whoever is affected. Sorry, this is a heavy one, um, but it's an important one. So thank you so much for sticking with me. 
Until we talk next week, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.